Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. They returned to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Rabbis appointed elders from them in the, each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Poseidon and coming to Pamphylia and when they had preached the word in Prague they went to Atalia and from Atalia they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you all very much for reading. Thank you so much for your welcome. It is a thrill to be back. It's 26 years since we started, which is uh, extraordinary. 26 years since we moved here, and uh, 22 years almost since uh, forward you sent us out to Uganda. Um, and uh, we owe you all as a church a great deal. And we had very happy years here. And we're particularly thrilled that um, Johnny and Naomi Dyer are here. Um, some of you may not be aware, but Johnny and I were colleagues briefly uh, in London. So it's uh, a thrill that uh, we can reconnect again. Um, so please keep Acts 14 open. I'm actually going to sort of flit around a bit in the chapters, two chapters before it, because I want to just try and take in a sense of the whole of that first missionary journey, um, uh, of which that little passage read um, is the conclusion. But let me pray as I begin. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule. May your spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, Turkey is a country that has become very important and precious to me. It's very much on my heart. Just last September, I was there. Um, I saw uh, Robin and Lorna, um, and I think it was my 16th visit to the country, going there uh, for work in my work with Langham Partnership. But I'll never forget one of my first visits uh, to Turkey, which was back in 2009, uh, and uh, I was going down to Antakya when it was still safe to do that, right down near the Syrian border. And Antakya is the modern name for a city now known, that we know as Antioch. And it was quite something to uh, drive, ah, oh, hopefully, is that going to appear? There's, there's some, I had some lovely photos, but they've not, oh, there they are, hallelujah. Um, <clears throat> it was quite something to drive um, uh, into the city from the tiny little Hatay airport um, and to drive into this uh, town nestling in the mountains, that is 
uh, modern Antakya, and with very few sort of tall modern buildings, basically it really struck me as we were driving in from the airport that the view could hardly have changed in 2,000 years. Oh, well, there it's gone. Um, <laughs> it, it does look like that. Uh, <laughs> maybe I, I trod on something. That was awkward. Maybe I better just stand absolutely rigid. Um, of course, the mountains hadn't changed, and I imagine that basically there's not a lot of difference actually even in, in the buildings. The one thing that really did strike me, though, of course, that weren't there 2,000 years ago were the minarets, that, of course, this is now a very uh, Muslim city. But what a thrill it was to join a tiny little uh, fellowship of, of believers huddled together in a home, meeting quietly each week, uh, they would sing, but they would only sing with the windows closed, even though it was very hot, uh, to avoid drawing too much attention. Um, so that is a city that was really impressed on my mind. And so it's a thrill to revisit Antioch in the book of Acts. And of course, that was a very important place in the history of the church, globally. And it was a very important place for Paul and Barnabas. But in the way that uh, Luke constructs his book, uh, this sort of Antioch debrief is a crucial moment just before the big, first big debate in the early church in the Council of Jerusalem. That happens in Acts 15. We won't look at that now. But the issue is what do we do with all these Gentiles, these non-Jews, getting converted? What do we do about that? And that's a big deal because actually, if you think about it, that's precisely what Paul and Barnabas were doing. They were going out into predominantly Gentile places to draw them in. And, and sure enough, they were drawn in. So, so what happens now? Well, Luke is at pains to show that they never acted unilaterally. And um, uh, we, we see back in chapter 9, you have Paul uh, being converted on the uh, Damascus Road. And if you remember then, Jesus commissions Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So it's from the horse's mouth, if you like. Jesus has commissioned him to do this. He's also said that he's going to suffer because of it. That was clear right from the beginning. There's no sort of trade descriptions. This is the deal. And exactly this is what happens on Paul's first missionary journey in chapters 13 and 14. And that is what they report back. We'll come to in a moment. And then in Acts 10, uh, God challenged Peter to embrace Cornelius' conversion. And then the Gentiles gradually came to Christ in their ones and twos, their dribs and drabs, here and there, a few here, a few there. But it would take the Antioch church and their decision to send people out deliberately that the worldwide missionary movement began for the first time. It was the first time it was intentional. Forward, sending us to Kampala 22 years ago, gave us a tiny little bit part, if you like, in that cascade down history of people being sent out to be part of this to draw people in. So what's the, the, the first thing we see in terms of this report back? What do Paul and Barnabas say? Well, the first thing they say is that God's kingdom path brings hardship to God's people. 
Have a look at verse 22. We must go through hardship, many hardships, to enter the kingdom of God. We must. That's quite a shock. I mean, it's one thing for Paul to suffer uh, for following and preaching Christ, and you might think, oh, well, he had it coming to him. Look what a rogue he was before. He was a, he was a murderer. He was a persecutor. Well, it's quite another for this to be true of all believers. And he's not talking about conversion when he's talking about entering the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about conversion here. He's more, it's more like the whole of the Christian life is the journey to the new creation. Entering the kingdom in its completion, in its fullness. And the journey to that point is no better roses. We must enter many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you're on that journey and, and things turn nasty. What sort of things are going to run across your mind? I mean, at least you're going to begin to think, I have made the most horrible mistake. What on earth did I think, was I thinking? I'm on the wrong team. I mean, surely, if you're suffering, then something's gone wrong. You must be on the wrong track, especially when suffering comes from religious people. I, I, thought, I thought I was with them. Why are they the ones to give me grief? Whenever I am in Turkey, I'm often training perhaps, I don't know, 20 or 30 people, uh, preachers for a few days at a time, and nearly all of them come from a Muslim background. Sometimes we'll be on a seminar, and every single person in our seminar is from a Muslim background, so first-generation believers. That means, without fail, every single one has faced incredible hardship. That's just assumed. They knew that when they were signing up. I'll never forget seeing a friend who is a pastor in Turkey, Turkish citizen, first generation believer. He's been a pastor for 30 years. And I noticed that he had a little fish badge on his car. Now, I, you know, I don't know whether you have a fish badge on your car. I, I don't because I don't want people to identify my driving with my... Um, anyway... Um, so that, you know, it's one thing to, to identify yourself, you know, on, on the M1 or whatever. But to do that in a place where the country is 99 point whatever percent Muslim is quite something. They've paid a real cost. They've calculated their cost. They said, no, I'm, I'm on this team and I want to be known as this. So when I'm training these guys, I've got more to learn from them than any other way around. And most of us haven't even begun to experience anything quite like that. So we need to be real. Which is why actually this verse, verse 22, is, is, is really quite important. Because this reminds you that this is normal. This is normal Christian experience. It's expected. As Jesus repeatedly made the point, you know, he said, uh, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Don't be surprised. But in some ways, when Paul talks about going through hardships, well, that's a massive understatement. 
in chapters 13 and 14, um, one of the ways that, that, that Luke uh, sort of captures this is, is, is that the suffering, the hardships, sort of get progressively worse as he's traveling around that part of southern Turkey. It starts with sort of disagreement and sort of a bit of conflict, and it, it degenerates into actual stoning. Paul's experience in Lystra from verse 19, it really shocked me uh, when I was really sort of studying and thinking about this because it says, they dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Now, just dwell on that for a second. People trying to kill usually check to see if they finish the job. I assume then... Paul must have been at least unconscious, barely breathing. There would have been some, no doubt, whose blood was up so much that they were, you know, they were desperate to finish the job. And so they leave him there thinking, okay, job done. And then verse 20, <laughs> the team comes to him and he sort of staggers up. But there, there's no retirement, there's no recuperation for Paul. He doesn't go on sabbatical. If I were him, I would go on sabbatical at this point. No, there's, uh, they start traveling again. No painkillers, may I remind. With every muscle in his body, must no doubt, screeching for rest. And what's more, the journey they make, verses 21 and 22, because not only is he deliberately preaching again, and that's what got him into trouble, He's doing it in the same places. What a complete nutter. I mean, the question is, why? Now, modern Britain is, is a pretty tolerant place, thankfully. And much of that tolerance is a very good thing. It's very easy to, to be rude about tolerance, but I'm grateful for tolerance. I hope you are. There are all kinds of ways in which actually it's a good thing. It gives us protections that I'm very glad to have. Don't knock it. There are legal rights, there are constraints on anarchy. So the idea that a mob could be roused to stone a preacher, frankly, still is unlikely. May not always be the case, but it's unlikely. So when uh, Paul talks about hardships, though, he doesn't mean we'll all have the same as him. The vast majority of us here will, will, will not, I'm glad to say. Though spare a thought for the many who still do, stonings, beatings, even crucifixions still happen. These are everyday realities for Christians in some parts of the world. But still notice, Paul says we must go through many hardships. And even here, even in leafy forward, Faith does and will have costs, even if they are more hidden. Insults, ostracism, being overlooked, indifference, maybe passive-aggressive silence. In other words, relationships being strained and even broken just for following Jesus. How irrational is that? But that is mission reality. That is Christian reality. Didn't Jesus warn him, if they despised him, they despise us too. So Paul says we must. So have no illusions. 
Now, I assume that all of us want our loved ones to enter the kingdom of God. We want our families, we want our friends. But to do so through hardships, well, that makes you think again, doesn't it? It's a tough call. So why? Why why does Paul bother? Why should we bother? And more importantly, why should we encourage our children and the next generation to bother? It's one thing to say, I can take it myself, but to see people I love taking it too, that's surely a different matter. Why? Well, the clue comes in the passage. You see, eventually, after appointing leaders in these churches and then praying for them and making their steady way back to Antioch, Notice how their supporters had sent them off, verse 26. Because at the beginning, they had been committed to the grace of God for the work now completed. And grace is the key to all of this. So look what summed up their report. The second point is this. God's kingdom door opens faith to all nations. Verse 27. On arriving there... They gathered the church together and reported that all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. The door is open and now they're streaming in. For Paul, you see, this is what puts those hardships into perspective. It's what spurred him on from town to town, even to hostile town. Because God was at work. What did that mean? It meant the door opened to Gentiles to have faith. I mean, that little phrase, door of faith, I I think it's clearly a favorite of Paul's. Uh, He uses it several times in his letters. You know, he'll pray that there will be an open door for for the faith as he goes around. And, And in Acts 13 and 14, there were all kinds of ways in which doors were opened. In Cyprus, in the other Antioch in Iconium, in Lystra, and Derby, These places, who'd have thought it, were the places where there was now a church. When months before, weeks before, there was no church, now there is a church. Gentiles truly are coming to Christ. And Paul and Barnabas could say, we've seen it with our own eyes. It's actually happening, folks. But Paul knew that God had predicted it. That's why he quotes Isaiah, speaking about uh, the light to the Gentiles. God is the God of the whole earth, of every language, every nation, every tribe, every people group, every subdivision, every demographic. Of course, he wants everyone to to hear, to know, to receive. But that's precisely the problem. Because not everybody wants everybody to receive. Because it's a scandal. I remember reading a few years ago uh, of a guy called Ron Nickel, who used to uh, run the, the Prison Fellowship International. Um, uh, this is quite a while back, but uh, he, he would visit prisons all over the world, and he had a standard talk uh, that he would give in, in different places, and he, and he would say in these prisons, you know, we don't know who's going to make it into heaven. That's not up to us. But Jesus indicated 
that there will be a lot of surprises. He said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to be there. But we do know that some thieves and murderers definitely will be there. Jesus promised heaven to a thief on a cross. And the Apostle Paul was an accomplice to murder. And Nikel said, I've watched the expressions on the faces of prisoners in places from Chile to Peru to Russia to all over the world as suddenly the truth sinks in. Because for these prisoners, the scandal of grace seems too good to be true. You mean thieves and murderers like us. But if the gospel is too good to be true for the unlikely and the marginalized, how much harder is it for those who have been slogging their guts out to be ready for God? For those who have been doing their best to, to be good enough. And, and actually, just like the, the, the video we saw earlier of the Pharisee thinking himself far better. Think of the slog he put in to be good enough for God. And how he despised the cowering tax collector, collaborator with the enemy at the back of the temple. You see, these religious types, they thought they'd earned their place, that they deserved their privileges. And when you look back across Acts 13 and 14, you find again and again that actually the opposition that they endure, that Paul and Barnabas face, comes from the traditionals, the religious, the holier than thou, the people who couldn't take it that these other types, these unworthy types were getting in, that the door was open even to them. That's not right. Who let them in? These are the ones who agitate the crowds and get them to attack at each stop. So you see, the door opens, Gentiles come in, and religious people cannot handle it and will not handle it, and they march them out of town or stone them out of town. So what's the big deal? What's the problem? Well, I think the, the problem is itself, the very problem is that the gospel's for everybody. That's the bit that sticks in the gullet, that it's for everybody. Back in Pisidian Antioch, the other Antioch, there had been many conversions, but before Christ, Gentiles had been joining Jewish synagogues. There were Gentiles in synagogues, but they were always uh, welcome on condition that they, well, effectively became Jewish. They went through the hoops uh, according to the rituals and procedures of Jewish culture. And, and there was precedent, and there was reason for that. You know, there were Old Testament verses to appeal to. So, you know, it wasn't completely irrational or illogical. But actually, in the end, what it meant was that Gentiles coming into the fellowship of God were always doing it on Jewish terms, on religious terms, which was never the idea. It was a form, I guess, in a way, a, a form of control. But along come Paul and Barnabas saying, you can follow the Jewish Messiah just by trusting him. 
Now, of course, there are consequences to that. You know, there's a lifestyle, there's a, there's a life, there's a path, a, a journey to go on, hardships to endure because you cannot enter the kingdom without hardships. But it's for all, for free, just believe. All nations, all languages, all demographics, you're in by believing, even if you have the wrong background. But the ability to see the glory of the gospel is itself, you see, a diagnostic test. If you see it as wonderful, then you get it. If you see it as a threat, you don't get it. And perhaps you never will, because you'll be trying to earn your way. And you will hate it when the riffraff just amble in. It'll stick in your gullet. Which is why as the gospel penetrates, penetrates into Gentile areas where there are Jewish synagogues in many of these places, it is the people in the synagogues who do everything they can to stop it at this stage. But Paul won't be stopped because he's been gripped by the gospel. For him, it's too wonderful for words. He will endure every hardship because he understands that's the deal. But grace by itself is enough to keep him going because he thinks, yes, this is what it's all about. Well, as I finish, I think this gives us three challenges as we, um, we head out from this. Three ways in which we, we need to embrace, yes, the fact that there are many hardships, but that this is what gospel kingdom living looks like. And the first one is really simple. It's basically, do we relish the gospel? Do we love the gospel for its just sheer exuberant openness? The freedom it gives, the joy that God doesn't look at us as miserable sinners who need to be crushed into the earth, but as people he loves. We get so familiar and, and it becomes almost drab, doesn't it, sometimes, which is bizarre. Try just stopping to think and think, even me, this is even for me, when he knows what I'm like. If you knew my heart, the things that cross my mind from day to day, from week to week, I guarantee it, you would not be sitting there listening to me. And if I knew yours, I'd not be here either. But he does. That's the amazing thing. He knows every detail. And yet, somehow, crazily, madly, he still wants us on his team. He even wants Christchurch Fullwood to be part of this. I know that things have been rough in the recent years. Church life is messy. Sometimes it's more messy than at other times. But the Lord's not done with you yet. He wants you on his team. But that's the crazy nature of grace. That's just the wonder of grace. Who, me? Who, us? You better believe it. 
And Paul found that actually, amazingly, people still do believe this stuff, and they come to him, they hear it, and they, they accept it, and they say, wow, this is amazing, why didn't anyone tell me before? Yeah, well, quite. That's what makes those hardships worth it. They're not permanent, they don't last forever, but they're a price worth paying. So, do we relish the gospel as much as we say we do or think we do? The second question is, are we prepared to cross cultures? Now, now, not everybody is expected to do this literally by relocating, of course. Some people do, and some people need the support of, uh, of a church like you to, to, to keep them out there and keep them going. And uh, as Paul mentioned earlier, it's been a joy to see various people in different places that uh, you know, I have a forward connection in common with, and that's a joy. Um, but the challenge still needs to be given because... You know, some people, it is the right thing to, to completely change culture, move into a different place where they are a fish out of water, where this is not their natural habitat, where you have to learn, where you are an, a, a minority. To be an ethnic minority when we lived in Africa was a very telling experience. Obviously, it wasn't exactly the same as being an ethnic minority here, but there are all kinds of ways in which it was obvious we didn't belong. And yet to see how loved we were and how we were able to serve was extraordinary uh, privilege. But then, of course, going out of the comfort zone is no less than what the Lord Jesus did. That's exactly what he did. And some, I mean, it's way beyond anything that any of us could ever even conceive of doing. And many in the past have gone out from Fullwood. Some have even come back. <laughs> and we praise God for that. Let's pray that many more will, perhaps even one or two here this morning, might think, yes, actually, this, this is what the Lord is calling me to do. Well, we pray that that will happen and that the Lord would supply all your, your needs to make that happen. Not everybody, but some. But what is true of everybody is the third challenge, and that actually flows out of what happened in all these cities in southern Turkey. Will others be welcomed into the fellowship when they're different? That is for every single one of us. To see life from the other side of the fence, as it were. Bizarre as it may seem, Christians can fall into the same trap that the Jews who persecuted Paul and Barnabas fall into. Whereas we expect people to come to us and to be like us. And if they don't fit, well, they don't fit, and they don't belong. We set up cultural barriers and hide within our narrow cliques if we're not careful. That's how we are left to our own devices. We make it very hard for those who are different to penetrate them. It's not quite the same as, as stoning people, I, I grant you. I mean, it's not on the same scale as that. Oh, I certainly hope there's no stoning going on in Fullwood. It would be a very different place if that is the case. Uh, 26 years ago, I don't think there was any stoning. But there's a sliding scale. And it is costly. There's no doubt about it. it. It can be very painful and difficult to serve those who are different from us. 
I, I read a, a very challenging book last year by an Iranian woman who um, was brought out of Iran quite a while back with her mother and her younger brother when she was, I think, eight or nine, maybe ten. Uh, it's a book called um, The Ungrateful Refugee. Very, very helpful to read that. Because actually, people are, comes, you know, can flee very dangerous and difficult and painful situations. And, you know, we expect them to be grateful to us when actually we have no conception of the trauma and agony that they bring and carry. And we get stroppy with them for being ungrateful when we're, doing, we're being so nice and lovely. Well, get a life. Get real. What would you be like if your house had burnt down and you'd seen people killed? When I taught at this, student, uh, this seminary in Uganda, about a third of our students were refugees from the surrounding countries, from, from what is now southern Sudan, from Congo, from Rwanda, Burundi, even one or two from Ethiopia and Eritrea. And uh, I'll never forget one of our students, Emmanuel, and I think I've mentioned him here before, but uh, we were chatting one day. He was a, a bank manager from Congo, quite a senior guy in his, I guess, then 50s, had three daughters. They walked to Uganda, took them weeks and weeks and weeks. He had seen various members of his extended family macheted. And yet, Jesus was using him. The Lord was with him. And he walked past our college one day and saw a sign saying, student enrollment now, or something like that. And he said, oh, okay, I've got nothing else to do. So he signed up. And he's now a pastor in northern Australia. But why should I expect him to be grateful? <laughs> if I'd been through all that, I'd need all the help I could get, wouldn't you? Do we welcome others? Warts and all, differences and all. If we are the us, then the gospel is for them as well, whoever the them are. Them, whoever the them is, them anyway. Now, it makes life complicated. It makes fellowship tricky and awkward. It's difficult to sing a song in two languages at once. So? But that's nothing less than the purpose of God. Paul and Barnabas had their part to play right at the start, kicking all this stuff off 2,000 years ago. And we're merely links in the chain. Now, you know, in global terms, Sheffield is a small city. It's a wonderful city. We were very, very happy here. And we really missed it in those years after we left. And how extraordinary it is that the whole world is here in Sheffield to study. What an extraordinary thing. They've come here. Can't imagine why. The world is here. I do think we'll be held to account for the opportunities we have to reach those who are different. What's stopping us? Paul and Barnabas were clear. Yes, we have to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. But despite this, they knew that God had committed to them the word of grace. He's committed it to us. Now, I have no idea what that's going to mean for us, let alone you. But I know that he has, and that he is at work, and that he will use it. And if we lay ourselves before him, 
he will be delighted to make the most of that. I know that because I've seen it. And it's happened from this place. What a wonderful thing that is. And so we pray that he would continue in extraordinary ways, unexpected ways, to use this motley crew of almost respectable believers. Let's pray. Father, you have committed to us an extraordinary message of grace and hope and love, of true acceptance, warts and all, with all our failings and our flaws, and yet you still want us on your team. For that we praise you and long that by your Spirit you would use us for your glory. Amen.